kingdom, we've seen some pretty challenging stuff. I've actually heard from several of you over these last several weeks that these texts have been tough. They've been convicting. They've been life-affecting, and that has certainly been the case for me as well. And while it is important for us to be confronted by God in his word, and while we need sometimes those squirm-inducing, self-examining sermons, we also need encouragement and grace from our Lord. And I think that's what we have in today's passage. This section in Matthew's Gospel concludes the second major discourse of our Lord and our Master, King Jesus, these words to his apostles as he sent them to minister to the various towns of Israel, sharing the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God and the call to repent and believe the message of the gospel. This second discourse of Jesus, of course, being a little shorter than the first major discourse, which was the Sermon on the Mount. But this second discourse may have been, as we've seen already together, somewhat alarming for some of these, at least, some of these apostles to hear. Jesus had made it clear from everything that he had said up to the point of our passage today that the mission that these 12 apostles were heading into was going to be hard. He had told them to expect persecution. He had prepared them for the possibility that their message would not be embraced by everyone. And he had exhorted them and encouraged them to remain steadfast even when that persecution came. He'd called them to fearless boldness, to remember that the sovereign God was on their side as they went. And finally, Jesus had not minced words when he utilized rather shocking language to preemptively clarify that his actual mission statement, if you will, included an intentional purposeful dividing of relationships to the extent of demanding allegiance to him above everything and everyone else, even family, or we could say family-like as well, relationships. His concluding words in that previous section included an illustrative reference to the horrific and barbaric instrument of Roman torture and execution, which of course is the cross. And he had said these words before he ever went to the cross, and he had referenced the cross to illustrate that willingness to follow and serve him would necessarily include a willingness to die to self, even to the point of suffering and shame such as with a cross. And so, perhaps, as Jesus was wrapping up these words to his 12 apostles in this second major discourse that Matthew writes down for us here, perhaps some of these men were already tempted to be afraid. Were already, perhaps, concerned about what it was that they were getting themselves into. And obviously, Jesus' words and his ministry on the whole, had already demonstrated that they could trust him. They had already expressed desire to follow him. But now this commission from Jesus to go out and put their own feet to his mission 
even when it was going to include various kinds of suffering, may have made them squirm, even as that has been the case for many of us these last several weeks as we've sought to understand and apply these words in our own time, in our own church, in our own context. But as is always the case with our Christ, and as is the case in his word, we are not left without any comfort or consolation when we see words such as these of instruction and exhortation. And I believe that these concluded words of chapter 10 provide comfort and consolation for us. Let's read them again. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What I believe Jesus is giving to these kingdom ministers as he's sending them out is kingdom ministry encouragement. Assuring them of his presence with them. Assuring them of the blessing that is promised to his kingdom ministry workers and his love for them as they go. It's kind of like when a father assures his young son of his presence and help when that son begins to take on some more responsibility around the home. For me, growing up, one of those big moments was being able to mow the lawn. That was exciting for me. And that's been the case with at least my older two boys too. And certainly when a boy begins to enjoy mowing the lawn and having some responsibility and the ability to handle a machine of a kind like that, it can be exciting to have freedom to do it without help, but the truth is that it's also assuring to know that your dad is behind you and watching what you're doing, helping you along the way. And we try to do this with our kids in other situations as well, as I know many or all of you parents in this room do as well. We know such and such is going to be hard, but it's required of you, and you're not alone, and we're going to help you. We love you. That's similar to what Christ is doing with his disciples here. I know this is going to be hard, but remember, I'm with you. And so let's work our way through these words for just a few moments and then go back and consider some of the meaning and application to us. On the heels of his rather ominous expressions of the coming trouble and tribulation for his apostles, Jesus now assures these specific 12 men through first an introductory truth, and then three variations on a theme, you might say, to illustrate it. And here's the truth that we see in verse 40. Whoever receives you is ultimately receiving me and my Father. Do you see the logic there in verse 40? I'm sending you, and the Father has sent me, so those whom I send represent me and therefore represent the one who sent me which means that those who receive you are also receiving me and are therefore also receiving the father this word receive has already been used multiple times in the context and the sense of it is this kind of reception this welcoming this accepting of the ministry of christ's kingdom and the and its message as well isn't this interesting? 
There's a lot of encouragement in these words, simple words, from Jesus in verse 40. In that, for these apostles, it meant that as they went, they were not going on their own. And they weren't going on their own authority. If you recall, at the beginning of this discourse, Jesus gives them authority to minister. They're going, therefore, with the authority of their sender and as messengers of their master and of their father. I wonder if any of you have heard of the names, these five names, Samuel Webb, John Fitzgerald, John Lawrence, George Johnston, and Tench, that's a great name, Tench Tilgman. I hadn't heard of these guys. I had actually heard of one of them, but I hadn't heard of four of these guys. These are four, five important men in American history that perhaps many Americans have never heard of. The reason I'm familiar with John Lawrence is because he's one of the characters in the musical Hamilton. Perhaps that sounds familiar to you now as well. But these five men were vitally important to the success of the colonial forces of the Revolutionary War because these five men were the couriers of George Washington, the general delivering his orders to the various stations and front lines throughout the war. And of course, in their age, without the same kind of quick, even instant and mobile, digital, face-to-face communication that we carry around in our pockets today where you can FaceTime someone, for instance, a courier in that time would not probably have been previously known by the officers to whom General Washington's orders were going. And so as these five men traveled via horseback to their destination, literally risking life and limb, they knew that at their destination, or at least perhaps some of them, their arrival would not be received with the kind of pomp that perhaps General Washington would have received himself. But they would have known that they were carrying the orders of the general. And that therefore, when they arrived at whatever headquarters they were sent to and dismounted their horses and approached the man or men in charge, they knew that they could hand over their orders with their heads held high because they could say something like, here are the orders of General George Washington. And with that connection, they would suddenly carry more weight, you might say, and perhaps been regarded more highly than before the soldiers and officers at that camp knew who they were or whom they represented. Webb, Fitzgerald, Lawrence, Johnson, and Tilgman were basically nobodies, particularly even in our estimation today. But because of their association with General George Washington, they could carry out their mission with confidence and with assurance that what they were doing mattered because they were connected to him. And that's just how it was with Jesus' apostles. And that's just how it is with us today. It's what Jesus essentially is providing for them in verse 40. You're going as my representative And you're going as a representative of my Father. And however you are received or welcomed or accepted will be a reflection of their reception of me and of my Father. That's a great comfort to those who were going, isn't it? 
As Jesus said in verse 16 of this very chapter, these men were going as sheep among wolves. And so they needed comfort like this. And so what Jesus is saying, taking this whole section in its context, is essentially, I know it's going to be hard, but remember, whoever opposes you is ultimately opposing me. In fact, there is a Jewish legal institution called the Shaliach, or one cent. And in their culture and context, the one cent was to be understood as having the same standing and authority as the one who sent them. They were, in a sense, united in that moment in value and uh, authority. And so, therefore, the sender would have been, excuse me, the sent one would have been regarded as highly as the sender. And therefore, those who aren't supportive of the ones who are sent by God on their kingdom advancing work are not just opposing the sent ones, the appointed ones. They're opposing God himself who sent them. And you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good and interesting, and the shiliach is cool and everything, but how does that bring comfort to Christian disciples in their context of life and ministry today? Some of you know that I was, am, I suppose, still the oldest sibling in my family growing up. And I was, therefore, the big brother. And while I was not nearly the brother I should have been, and nor was I always a comforting or calming presence to my little sisters on more than one occasion, I did have the opportunity to express to one or both of them that they could be assured that whoever messed with them was messing with me. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, these words of Jesus to the apostles in verse 40 were comforting as a younger sibling may be comforted by an older sibling who says to them, whoever messes with you is messing with me. And isn't that consistent with what Jesus had said earlier in this very chapter when he said in verses 14 and 15, just perhaps on the page you're already looking at, verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And of course, then here at the end of this discourse, he in effect says it again. If they do not receive you, they will have to deal with me because I'm the one who's sending you and the Father sent me to send you. And so that is this first truth that Jesus is assuring his apostles with at the beginning of these concluding words of his second discourse. That's the truth. But then he goes into a kind of motif trio to illustrate his point. In verses 41 through 42, Jesus speaks of these rewards that come to those who receive prophets or righteous persons or little ones. And this is fascinating and and beautiful stuff. There's a few contextual things to note here. There is some exegetical debate about these verses, and there are some questions that perhaps even come to one's mind when studying this passage, such as, who are these Prophets, righteous ones, and little ones. These specific groups of people Jesus has in mind. Is this a descending order of prominence or rather perhaps an illustrative 
restatement describing the same people in some different ways. You could, you could sort of ask it in another way. Is Jesus explaining here that there are increasing and decreasing levels of rewards in direct correlation to the level of support and reception that various kinds of kingdom ministers receive? Or is he essentially making the same point by repeating and restating the same thing in three different illustrative ways? I tend to think it's the latter. I do think it's okay to think of verses 41 and 42 as moving progressively downward in one sense, but only in regard to the typical regard of that kind of prominence, not in regard to actual value. Because we would all have to agree, wouldn't we, that all gospel ministers, regardless of their strengths and weaknesses, regarded, uh, regardless of their gifts or shortcomings or weaknesses, are equally valuable to God and loved by Him. And so I think if you begin to read these two verses and sort of over-realize or hyper-literally interpret the term righteous person, as if some of God's messengers are apostles, some of them have the gift of prophecy, some of them are literal children, and some of them are especially good at being good. And you might forget about the Old Testament sensibilities of Jesus' original hearers. The Old Testament that these men would have known used the phrase the righteous to describe all who trusted in God and worshipped him and who were his children, as opposed to the wicked in the Old Testament, who were God's enemies. Similarly, I don't think this phrase, little ones, here is only referring to literal children. Though, certainly, in the context of the rest of Scripture, Jesus demonstrates his concern and care for children multiple times. But rather, I think in this case, we have a metaphor for the seeming insignificance and weakness and smallness of Christ's Christian ministers. The world easily would push aside those who seem less important, less gifted, less impressive, viewing them as weak and simple, perhaps condescending in their attitudes towards them, just like in that time would have been the case with children or little ones. And so really, I think all of these categories, including the apostles, could be described as Christ's little ones. In fact, in the E412 session that we enjoyed already this morning in the context of John's letter in the upper room discourse, towards the end of it, Jesus calls his disciples, my little children. The little ones of Christ, despised regarded as less impressive by worldly standards of success or intelligence or wealth or strength, viewed rather as feeble and weak and perhaps not worthy of the mantle of a messenger or minister of God. In John Calvin's commentary on this passage, he speaks of this verse as referring to, this phrase particularly, little ones, as referring to how the world... Those who aren't on, you could say, Team King Jesus, Calvin doesn't use that phrase, if you will, pridefully tramples on his messengers because of how little they seem in comparison to how they measure success. 
how they consider importance, how they view strength. So that whole thing is the first question. What are these prophets, righteous persons, and little ones? I think they're all the same thing, and I think they are essentially the various kinds of ministers of Christ that are valued by him equally. So then therefore, the second question would be, well, then what is the reward here for each of these kinds of ministers of Christ? Well, I think if you interpret these verses as basically a repeated illustrative motif illustrating a singular, more concrete point, then I think it makes sense to understand the reward here as, in essence, just one reward as well, rather than as a list of different kinds of rewards that ministry supporters will receive commensurate to their level of who they're supporting. So in other words, I don't think that the point of the word reward here is that some are going to get more prominent rewards than others if you support a prophet or if you support a righteous person or if you support a child though the list does certainly seem to descend in perceived prominence order. But rather, I think the point of this word reward here and the whole idea of rewards for those who support Christ's kingdom ministers is that kingdom servants can be assured that they will receive kingdom rewards. Kingdom servants will receive kingdom rewards. And so part of what Jesus is saying here, I think, is this. Providing a cup of water for his little ones will be regarded and rewarded in accordance with his abundant, lavish riches and grace. In other words, a seemingly insignificant and minor act of care and hospitality and graciousness for those who otherwise seem minor and insignificant to the world but are highly valued by Jesus, will be rewarded. This goes back to some of the other things we talked about in E412 this morning again, doesn't it? doesn't seem like that big of a deal if anyone in this room knocked on your door this afternoon and said, could I please have a cup of water? I doubt any of you would say, sorry. doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But to Jesus, apparently... Little things matter. But you might wonder if there are literal specific kinds of rewards for those who support kingdom ministers. I'm not sure that the text gives us that. That certainly might be the case, but I don't think we can be sure, according to this text, that there is a specific kind of unique kingdom reward that you get if you are supporting kingdom ministry. I tend to think that in the context of Jesus' whole teaching and in the context of Matthew's whole message in this book so far, the reward is simply the kingdom life that's given to those who trust him and follow him and therefore serve him. And that it's not just a reward for those who go, but for those who also give. Because while in a sense, every single Christian, I hope you know this, Every single Christian is called to go in at least one sense. Some are equipped to do more going than others are equipped to do. And so not everyone is called to do the exact same thing when it comes to that going. Going for some might be literally to a foreign land. Going for some might literally be entering into vocational pastoral ministry, for example, or any other kind of vocational ministry. That's your occupation. 
but it can also be going to your block. It can be going to your subdivision. It can be going to a community mom's group. It can be going to the local school that your children are enrolled in. But the fact is that every goer is also going to need some givers to support them. And so, friends, I think in a sense we should all be both in some way. Though acknowledging some seasons are going to feel a little more goey than givery. The point of this passage is that Jesus is invested in both. And both are rewarded. I think this reference from a little bit later in Matthew, turn to chapter 25, is, is helpful for us. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Listen to these words. And see if anything seems connected to what we've just been saying. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers or little brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those in his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We'll dig deeper into that passage and however long it takes for us to get there. But I think you see some connective tissue in these words. That phrase, the brothers, can be translated and is in some other translations, little brothers. There is a reward for those who helped his little brothers, and it is the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And rather, the eternal fire for those who turn away his little ones. And so what's the reward in Matthew 10? I think it's the kingdom life that all true Christians long for more than anything else. Eternal fellowship with God through Jesus. Now in our remaining time, I want to offer three encouragements from this passage for us in our context. Because as we have heard these words of Matthew chapter 10, and as we survey the landscape of our own context, hearing the call of Christ on our lives in different but similar ways, Perhaps we might be a bit intimidated or frightened. Maybe when you stand back and survey the 
landscape of our culture, take a look at our current context, we might feel a little bit like old Ben Kenobi surveying Moss Eisley where he says, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. That's pretty much what we see in 21st century America, isn't it? And so three encouragements for us. Number one, this passage teaches us that kingdom ministers enjoy union with God. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are a minister of Christ. Whether vocationally or non-vocationally, or you might use the word lay ministry. In other words, it's not your, it's not your occupation, your job that you get paid for. Whether you are vocational or non-vocational, you are a minister of Christ. And as you go, you can have the assurance that as his children, you are united to Christ through faith in him and therefore are united to, to God. Isn't that the most amazing thing? Doesn't that just steal your courage? If you are a child of God, if you have received him through faith and through the repentance of your sins, you are united to God. You are, as the New Testament describes you, in Christ. In fact, that's the phrase most often used in the New Testament to describe what we would call Christians. The word Christians is not seen that often, actually in the New Testament, hardly ever in fact, but the phrase in Christ, particularly in relation to the identity of a person, is seen multiple times. And that's because, I think, our union with God in Christ is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. It's not just about having, quote unquote, a personal relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That kind of common Christianese jargon-esque nomenclature that we've become accustomed to but doesn't perhaps even have meaning to us like it should. Rather, what it is to be a Christian is to be given by grace through faith Christ's holy, righteous, beloved identity. Which is why we sing, my worth is not in me, but my value is fixed. My ransom has been paid at the cross. If you are in Christ, that means you are in the identity of Christ. You share in who he is. You're certainly not God himself, but you are like Christ, the chosen of God. You are viewed as the law keeper because Christ has kept it for you. You are viewed in the same vein as the righteousness earner and as the risen Savior, your Christ. And so all who have been united to Christ and that are therefore commissioned by Christ can know that they go with Christ. They go with his kingdom message. They go in kingdom ministry and they go in a continual, unalterable state of being in union with him. And so therefore, just like those five couriers of General George Washington, we, my friends, we carry orders from the general, as it were, from the king. And as such, our very status, our esteemedness is transformed because of the one whom we represent. Yes, we are nobodies, 
but we're also not nobodies because we are connected to Christ. Friends, in these words, Jesus is like the big brother that says to you, they mess with you, they're messing with me. So be encouraged. You are united to Christ, and as such, like these 12 apostles, though different from them in some important ways, you can be assured of his presence. That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two is that kingdom ministry brings reward from God. As I said a moment ago, a cup of water seems small, but according to these verses, God regards it highly. In other words, I think part of what Jesus is saying here is that even the small things matter to God. Even the small ways of ministering, even what we might consider to be a weak and feeble attempt at ministering, it matters to God. And in fact, if you've been a Christian for long enough to have read most or all of the Bible once or twice or more than that, I think you come away from a reading of the whole Bible with the understanding that the small things actually seem to matter more to God, at least what we consider small. And so no matter the seeming size, influence, importance, weakness, or impact of the ministry of Redeemer Bible Church, we, my beloved fellow members, we can be encouraged that our kingdom ministry, no matter if it's clunking along, no matter how important and influential and big or small it seems, we will ultimately be met with kingdom rewards if we are faithful. And here we go back to the idea of givers and goers. My friends, we've got to strive to be both, but we also need to understand that the giving is just as important as the going and that the going shouldn't matter, quote-unquote, more to us. Giving, supporting, whether financially or with your time or in faithful, consistent prayer, matters just as much, even though it seems or may seem in certain moments small to you. And I think the easy application here, as it should be, is how we support mission partners. But I want to just acknowledge that and then suggest that we think about another application and just ask this. Ask yourself this. Is there someone that I'm connected to that is in some way involved in kingdom ministry that I can support, no matter how small that support may seem? And so it certainly includes mission partners, but it includes your local church pastors. It includes the deacons. It includes other ministry leaders in the life of our body. It includes someone like Jamie, who's not here this morning, but who organizes her subdivision's annual fall festival and is looks for people to help with that. Or who, you may not know this, is looking to organize a food pantry through our church. It may look like supporting Paul every year, putting together the turkey trot. It may look like helping Brian, who's planning to organize Help for Homes in, I believe, May. Or we reach out to the community and help some people with their homes. My friends, kingdom ministry, whether you are a goer or a giver, will receive kingdom rewards. In other words, my friends, you can be assured not only that you are united to Christ as you walk through and act out your service to him, but that your future is also characterized by eternal kingdom life with him. And so we ask ourselves these kinds of questions. I think there's another connected question that 
has to pop up into our minds with this. Is there a certain Christian minister, again, whatever that looks like, vocational, lay, mission partner, pastor, uh, church member doing some kind of ministry? Is there a certain Christian minister that I have a hard time taking seriously because they don't seem that impressive? Their weaknesses stand out to me a little more than perhaps their strengths. We've got to be careful with that. We live in a society that has duped us into far too highly regarding those who seem the most impressive to us. As if that's the only thing that matters or the only way that God uses people. And yes, I'm talking about things like Christian social media influencers or celebrity pastors or conference speakers or authors. And all of these can be good and indeed can be used and are used by God to bless and serve the body of Christ in their place. But, oh, my friends, please don't be led astray into thinking that the ordinary, seemingly less significant ministers in your life are less important or worthy of your time, your support, your prayer, than those who more naturally jump out to you as seeming impressive and worthy of your attention and easy to follow. Remember that all faithful kingdom ministry, no matter how seemingly weak or mundane or small or big and influential and impressive, is assured reward from God. That's number two. Number three, kingdom ministry is accomplished by Jesus. You may have thought that I forgot about Matthew 11.1, but I didn't. Here it is. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. After Jesus finishes this second major discourse, it's implied that the disciples then go as he sends them. And then Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 11, moves on to continue his own ministry tasks and commitments. And then in chapter 11, verse 2, is just... What's next in Jesus' ministry in accordance with what Matthew was writing down? Isn't it interesting that Matthew's next step as the author of this gospel isn't to then detail the adventures of the apostles? Jesus sends these men, and then we get more ministry with Jesus. In fact, Matthew doesn't give us any details about what the apostles did next. He actually doesn't even reference them and their ministry again till chapter 17. And and this just blows me away. That chapter 17 passage, we'll get there eventually, is a reference to these same men's failure to do the very thing that Jesus had given them authority and called them to do, which is cast out a demon. So the next time the apostles pop up in Matthew's narrative is them not doing a very good job of what Jesus called them to do. And I find this mind-boggling. And I think one of the most important things that we glean from this is that the primary agent of kingdom ministry is Jesus. Even though his sent ones matter, and I hope you've gotten that that point up to this point. We matter very much. And even though we should go boldly and we should give sacrificially and we should have confidence and we should put ourselves out there and we should be encouraged, we've got to remember that Jesus himself is the ultimate kingdom minister and it's not all up to us. And if it was, we'd be doomed 
Because even these specially appointed, miraculously gifted, authority-empowered 12 apostles still managed to mess up kingdom ministry when it came to casting out demons. They couldn't do it. So my friends, all kingdom ministers matter and should be supported. And everyone in ministry, which is all of us in this room, has, therefore, these encouraging words to cling to. And cling to them. But as you cling to them, remember, it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And my friends, not only is it not all about you, it's not all about the ones that you're looking at. The ministers in your life, whomever they may be. And if our focus is drifting from Jesus as the ultimate kingdom ministry agent onto his servants, in terms of our focus, not that we don't pay attention, we pay very close attention, but in terms of our focus, we're going to face at least two consequences. Number one, we will be disappointed. You will be disappointed by human ministers, human Christian leaders, because they are literally incapable of doing what they're called to do perfectly. They are going to mess up. It will happen. It has happened. You've got stories. I've got stories. And it will continue to happen. The apostles weren't the focus of Matthew's narrative. He moves on from this passage to more stuff about what Jesus does. But when it comes time to tell the story in Matthew 17, 16 about Jesus casting out this demon, Matthew has to put in there that the reason Jesus is casting out the demon is because his apostles couldn't get it done. Fallen human ministers, leaders, lay ministers, are going to mess up. They are going to stumble. They are going to sin. And there will be some ordinary ways in which this is the case. There will be simple oversights. There will be boneheaded mistakes. There will be some extraordinary ways in which this is the case. There will be sinful actions. There will be failures of character. And when we are more focused on the fallen servants of Jesus than Jesus himself, we will be sorely disappointed. We will get hurt. We will get jaded. We may even drift away from Jesus, the church, the Bible. That's consequence number one. Consequence number two is that if we focus on human ministers over Jesus, we will lose the love for the little ones of Jesus. R.T. France in his commentary puts it this way. I don't have it on the screen. It is only when people recognize the special significance of Jesus's little ones because of their relationship to him and to the one who sent him that they will be willing to take his little ones seriously and receive them. And so, friends, if we put too much focus on impressiveness and skill or influence in the age of influencers or on the lack of strength and the lack of capability and the lack of impressiveness and influence of the fallen ministers of Christ's kingdom, we run the risk of failing to live out exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10, 41 through 42. We run the risk of holding in lower and lesser Regard those who to us seem little, kind of weak, not quite great at this particular thing. 
for example, this could look like more highly regarding the John Pipers and John MacArthur's of Christianity than our own local pastors. Thank God for John Piper and John MacArthur, but I think you see what I mean. And so Christians, we will find ourselves disappointed in the ordinary ministers and ministries of ordinary local churches like ours with our ordinary capabilities and gifts and strengths if our focus shifts from the truest kingdom minister, Jesus himself, to those whom he has appointed, who are important but not ultimate. But my friends, the good news is that if Jesus is the focus of all of our kingdom ministry mindsets and actions, and if he therefore is where our ultimate hope lies and where our ultimate purpose is rooted, you know what's not going to happen? You're not going to get disappointed because Jesus cannot disappoint you. He cannot fail you. He cannot mess a single thing up. He will never let you down. That is not the same as he will not do anything that you don't like. But that's not the same thing. That's an us problem. That's not a him problem. When he does things we don't like and we don't like it, we just have to get in sync with what he's doing in order to deal with it better. But he will never let you down if your focus is on him. And if your focus is on his kingdom ministers in a disproportionate way, in an unhealthy way, you will be disappointed. And you will fail to live out the calling of Christ to support and care for his little ones. And so my fellow Dear, precious kingdom children of Christ, keep your eyes on him. Focus on him. He is the reason that we give money to the work of the ministry wherever it is, here at this church, elsewhere. Even when that giving isn't fitting perfectly with our big master plan of saving and spending. He's the reason that we sacrifice our time and energy for the good of our local church. He's the reason we deliberately decide to go out of our comfort zone and speak to that unbelieving neighbor or coworker or family member or whatever it might be, even though it scares us. He is the ultimate message. He is the ultimate messenger. And therefore, he is the ultimate focus and purpose of all that we're doing here at Redeemer Bible Church. And according to this passage, he's the one who's going to make it happen anyway. And so don't be afraid, my friends. Don't be discouraged. Don't be weary. And don't be disappointed when people fail you. Look to Jesus and be encouraged. Look to him crucified and risen for you as the ultimate display of his kingdom ministry, remembering that he is, all that he is, and all that he's done is the reason that we minister as he has commissioned us to do. Let's pray. Oh God, only you can do this in us. We are, all of us, fallen, feeble, and incapable, unimpressive, weak and broken ministers. And so we need your help. We need these encouraging words, and we thank you for these encouraging words that remind us that 
as we are serving him, as we follow him in what he has called us to do, simply faithfully, we will be blessed. We have the presence of Christ with us, and we don't need to be disappointed or discouraged about the human weaknesses and failings that we observe around us. Help us not to regard the mundane, ordinary aspects of Christian life and ministry as little and unimportant. Help us not to be discouraged in a season in the life of our church that feels leaner and is leaner monetarily, in terms of the number of ministers in our body. Help us not to be discouraged. Help us to be encouraged by these words of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. And as always, I'd invite you to take a few minutes to pray quietly in your own hearts for just a moment. What hope and encouragement from the one who has gone before us. And I